we've decided that you know going forward the moment focus on the education basics around hydration nutrition is actually probably far more important for the average person be it a little bit less sexy and a little bit less um you know marketable it it is ultimately probably where most people can find the biggest performance gains the triathlon show 280 What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Andy Blow, who is the founder of Precision Hydration. He is back to revisit the topic of hydration and nutrition strategies for triathlon and endurance events and races. And uh, in this interview, Andy discusses plenty of practical and actionable ways that can help you get your hydration and nutrition strategy right for race day so that you can have as good a chance as possible of not letting that ruin your race, which unfortunately happens to a lot of athletes. Before we get into the interview, big thanks to our sponsors. And as you know, Precision Hydration is one of the sponsors for this episode. And uh, I think that this interview with Andy really goes a long way to show why I admire Precision Hydration as a company, because it's very clear that their goal here is to help people and educate people. And they do a really good job of that with uh, podcast interviews on this podcast and on other podcasts as well, uh, on their blog, their newsletter and their social media. Uh, it's always filled with uh, really good uh, practical advice that you can actually implement in your training and racing. And as Andy himself mentions in this interview, once we get into it, not everybody is going to need to uh, to replace sodium and electrolytes in their events. So it's not as if they're trying to sell everybody on their products. But for those that do, if you want to try Precision Hydration's specific sodium and electrolyte products, then you can use the promo code that triathlon show one five to get 15% off your entire order or try your first box for free with the promo code that triathlon show all caps and big thanks as usual to Roka who is also sponsoring this episode Roka has uh, several patented technologies and perhaps the most famous one is their arms up technology that they use in all of their wetsuits from the entry level uh, to the Maverick X line and they also use it in their tri-suits so when you use a Roka tri-suit and a Roka wetsuit you can make sure that your mobility during the swim leg of uh, the triathlon is uh, going to be performed with as much mobility as you can possibly muster. And the arm sub technology is just one example of how innovative and technologically advanced Roka's products are. Uh, they really go to the nth degree to make sure that they produce uh, top class products that are designed to make you as fast as possible in your race. You can get 20% off your order with the promo code TTS20 on Roka.com. And I forgot to mention Precision Hydration's URL, and that's of course, precisionhydration.com. So there we go. Let's get into the interview with Andy Blow. Welcome back, Andy, to that triathlon show. How are things going? Really good, thanks, Michael. I'm just uh, 
yeah, like you, surviving the Northern European winter. But I am going to Australia next week, so so I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, and uh, the week after that, I'm going to Portugal. So so I'll get. I guess we just have to hang in there a little bit more. Exactly for both of us. Um, so let's get right into the the topics that we have on store because we have quite a lot for today. And the first thing that I wanted to tackle is to just revisiting the basics because it's been quite some time since we did that we have a lot of new listeners i just uh, talked about that before we started recording so can you talk about the sweat rates sweat sodium concentration differences that exist between individuals and why that is important to consider and plan for especially in longer and and hotter races yeah i think you know the Definitely, the, one of the things that always seems to get overlooked for whatever reason, or often gets overlooked in planning nutrition hydration strategies, is the level of individual variation that that occurs between different people. And whilst a lot of people can get away with, you know, probably following a generic or the same kind of nutrition plan if they're only doing short or light events or events that are in moderate environmental conditions, when you start to go out and do very long events or events in extreme heat or um, things where you you know where you're pushing yourself really really hard for an extended period of time what are small differences or or even moderate differences in in physiology for example like in sweat rate or sweat sodium composition can can be multiplied out over a number of hours to create vast differences in what your what individual athletes need and and i think it's a continuing struggle to sometimes you know educate people on on the range of those needs and then how to go about identifying what you need to do do to make it work for yourself and your own situation so we have both uh, the fluid needs obviously but also the the sodium needs and uh, if we cover those one at a time like starting with fluid for example what might the uh, the inter-individual uh, differences be in how much you lose in how much sweat you lose uh, simply and and how much should you try to uh, try to ter- try to restore? Because uh, you might not be able to do to restore all of that if you're in a hot race and you're sweating buckets. Definitely. Um, the, so the range of, of difference in fluid loss is is dramatic between people and in different situations. And I think if you really want to look at the extremes, in certain situations, you know, in in very cold conditions, athlete sweat rates. On, a, on an hourly basis, especially in a longer event where the intensity isn't super high, can become extremely low. You might find that you know, you're know you losing only a few low hundreds of milliliters of sweat per hour. Um, I know that there's a, a good example of that in um, Alan Hovder, who's, who we've started working with over the last year or so, who's won the Norseman a number of times. And he's done the, that, that race in very variable weather conditions and reported extremely low sweat losses when the weather was effectively around freezing zero degrees celsius on the bike ride and compared with what it could be if you know if it's up in the in the teens in celsius which i guess would be in the the 50s 60s maybe 70s fahrenheit um so the lower end is almost like only a little bit more than zero but at the higher end some people can lose we've measured athletes losing in excess of three liters an hour during exercise and I would say, you know, that's more than three liters an hour is rare, but more than two liters an hour is not is not so rare in in people, you know, say doing an Ironman in in very hot weather who are fit and working hard. 
the average is often quoted as being around you know one to 1.2 liters per hour but but that span is pretty wide and and interestingly you know, once you get above about one 1.2 liters an hour of loss regardless of you know anything else your gastric emptying rate isn't and your fluid absorption rate is probably not going to keep up with those losses so you are going to run some sort of deficit even if you drink as much as you you physically can absorb and then as you pointed out the next question therefore is then okay well how much should you replace and again that that is a complicated question because i think if you're someone who's losing two and a half three liters an hour in terms of sweat then if you're only absorbing one 1.2 liters per hour it's very easy to run up a pretty significant fluid deficit quite quickly so for those people people who are losing a lot of, of sweat their their mission if you like is is to try to absorb as much as they possibly can because they are just fighting a losing battle for other people whose losses are more moderate it can be a little bit more uh, they sh- it, it becomes possible for them to overshoot and therefore being a little bit more um, conservative in what they try to take in is is probably um, is more prudent so a lot of our recommendations with people start somewhere between let's say 500 4 to 500 milliliters per hour at the lower end for longer and hotter events up to about 1 to 1.2 liters an hour as being a, a comfortable window with that most people would sit within but we always have to emphasize that within that there's, there's a bit of variation and quite a lot of trial and error needed to actually dial those numbers in exactly and in terms of dialing those numbers in is your general recommendation that each athlete should test themselves in conditions that are simulating their expected race conditions or do you think that based on just i guess like for example indoor training and getting a general feel for how much you sweat you can you can have a guess at whether you should be at the lower end or the higher end or somewhere in the middle of that uh, 0.5 to 1.2 liter range yeah specificity is always the best if you can do it so if you can go out and reliably ride or run in conditions that simulate those that you're going to race in similar clothing you know, similar intensity that sort of thing then you're going to get the most accurate picture that you can of what you might potentially lose during a race and then that gives you a pretty decent figure to work off okay if i'm losing 1.5 liters an hour how does it feel if i'm replacing one liter an hour so on and so forth and and to be honest with you the most diligent and often some of the more successful athletes we work with especially those that are having issues with this that that's the approach they take they really work hard to simulate those conditions and, and get a feel for it there are occasions though where you know let's say taking your example you're in finland at the moment and if you were going to do if you were going to prep almost entirely for Kona training in Finland, it's going to be very hard for you to actually go outdoors and simulate any kind of weather conditions that are going to be close to what you're likely to experience there. And that's when maybe training indoors and and getting a feel for what your sweat rates are like in a in a more simulated condition, or or even just the a more um, you know a, a more oppressive condition indoors is probably the next best thing alternatively because there are a lot of athletes that just aren't so interested or so willing to go to the depths of of doing this kind of you know sweat rate analysis on themselves and all the rest of it what i would say is that the very least that you can do is start to record how much you are drinking during harder training sessions and races comparing that with performance and that is a that is ultimately what we're most interested in because although 
monitoring changes in body weight is interesting and can indicate things. Ultimately, it's about performance. And, and certainly one of the things we do increasingly with the pro athletes we're working with is encourage them to record as diligently as possible their fluid intakes during hard simulation training sessions and during races, and then trying to compare that against performance against any gi distress and other things to build up a picture of and the weather conditions so we can say you know in these conditions this level of fluid consumption seems to work or doesn't and we can test them just from there yeah that is uh, good advice do, do you the professionals and maybe really uh, serious age groupers that you work with do you recommend that they go out and repeatedly try to get a, a feel for the range of uh, difference in in sweat loss with from day to day and uh, does uh, does this exist like a, a difference from day to day in sweat loss or, or is it pretty similar if we assume that the conditions and clothing and such are similar I think if you control the variables and the variables that really impact this are going to be the environmental conditions, so both heat and humidity, and if you're outside wind as well, the the clothing and the intensity, uh, probably also the duration, of course, um, Those, though, if those factors are controlled, once you know what your figures are like in certain conditions, they don't seem to deviate a lot. You know, with a bit of heat acclimation, sometimes sweat rates go up. Um, but with a lot of athletes, we see that shift being relatively minor because a lot of athletes are semi-heat acclimated all year round just because of the volume of, of training they do that keeps their body hot. So I would say once you've got a feel for it, it's, the best thing to do usually is to go for an intensive period of really monitoring this and getting a feel for it. And then you probably have some reliable benchmark figures to go back to. Okay. And uh, in terms of the sweat sodium uh, composition or concentration, what sort of variations are we talking about there and uh, can you describe how to yeah how how to work with that and take that into account when planning uh, racing and training well definitely that's a huge one so where we might see a four or five fold variance in sweat rates we see up to a 10 or 11 fold difference in sodium composition so we've sweat tested athletes who are losing only 200 milligrams of sodium per liter of sweat. And we've seen some that are losing over 2000 milligrams of sodium per liter of sweat. And, and as you know, and as some people are listening, will probably know my own experiences with this. I, I lose about 1.8, 1.9 grams or 1800 to 1900 milligrams of sodium per liter. That, that's what led me to really start investigating this area because I had such terrible problems being a, someone with a relatively high sweat rate, but also a high sodium loss. And, and that is the one that really affects um, predominantly the composition of the type of drink or the amount of salt you might need to take during an extended extended race or training session and and to give you an idea of the bandwidth of that we do definitely see on the lowest lowest end with people who have low sweat rates and low sodium um, excretion rates in their sweat that they can often do even relatively long endurance events in the heat with very light or almost close to no sodium supplementation whatsoever but on the on the other end of the scale we see people who are having to take you know 1.5 1.6 grams of sodium per hour through an Ironman in order to continue to perform in good shape so the, the the bandwidth on that is huge and that's a that's a part that we obviously work increasingly closely with athletes to help them figure out and how do you do that what is the way to figure out what your uh, sodium losses and sodium concentration in the sweat is 
basically two different ways. You've got the good old fashioned trial and error way where you where you see you you try to use your intuition or there's a free online sweat test guide on our website. You can answer some questions and it, it points you towards whether you're likely to lose, you know, a low amount, a medium amount, or a high amount of sodium in your sweat, and then we can give you some parameters to start playing around in. But the more accurate way of doing it, if you have access to it, is we do have uh, you, know, you can have a sweat test, which involves us taking a sweat sample and analysing the sodium concentration. And that figure seems to be pretty stable within an individual. So that can be just a one-time test. And that, that sort of puts a marker in the sand and lets you know whether your losses are low, moderate, high or very high. And then we can start a bit more refined trial and error off the back of that to, to then build up to a, to a solution. Mm. Do you have any numbers in terms of uh, accuracy of your uh, free online sweat tests? Like how close do you get with those estimates to to what the actual sweat loss if tested with uh, the devices? Yeah, we've correlated it against some of the results from sweat testing. And what was interesting was there's the the main the main thing that shone through was that athletes who have higher sweat sodium losses tended to be able to use the questionnaire. Uh, it, to they they knew their bodies and had an inkling that they were losing more more salt. So the questionnaire was was very accurate at letting them know that. Um, it was a bit less. It, it works potentially less well with people lower down the scale. But ultimately, you know, that's almost what we'd expect because those at the higher end are the ones for whom this isn't the most impactful thing, and they've noticed things about their performance in the heat, or they've noticed things about the way you know they see salt stains on their skin after training and racing that that are strong indicators that they're losing more. So the the online sweat test is we would never claim that it's perfect, but it's a very good starting point if this is something you want to investigate. Yeah, if you see like serious salt stains on your skin or on your clothing after training, uh, what is that an indication of? Do you have an idea? Does that mean that you're probably above 1000 milligrams or even above 1500 milligrams uh, do you have any idea uh, of so that listeners can perhaps correlate correlate their experiences with with a number it's very hard to put a number on it and i'd be doing as both in a disservice if i tried to i think because two of the factors that make a huge difference in that are your sweat rate and also the environmental conditions because if it's very very hot and dry you can sweat quite a lot and your sweat evaporates very quickly and tends to leave much more of a visible salt residue than if it's hot and humid. So you could be losing more potentially in heat and humidity, but it wouldn't show up quite as much on your skin and clothing because that area remains you know, damp a lot of the time. And the, the way I always, um, this is always re-emphasized to me when I go to, because I often go to Arizona, and Florida in February to work with teams in baseball spring training in Arizona, I'll go running and it's hot and dry. And I come back from a run and I'm pretty dry, but I'm caked in salt. Whereas I go running in Florida and I come back from a run and I'm just dripping and there's no visible salt marks. So I think in, in honesty, it depends a little bit on the environment. And we've got, we've got a blog on our website now, which is, you know, all about estimating your, whether you're losing a lot of salt in your sweat or not and that might be a useful one to link in the show notes for people to read about in, in more depth here because I think that that's a very good question and and ultimately the good the great thing about being an endurance athlete and doing lots of training and racing is that you get to know your body very well and if you attend to the right cues I think you can get quite good at tuning into this particular aspect of your physiology with if you're pointed in the right direction. 
Yeah, that, no, that's very interesting, and and I also do notice that now training in Finland that uh, the uh, the amount of salt stains that I get is uh, seems pretty extreme compared to in Portugal, where uh, the climate is is more humid, uh, being right next to the Atlantic. So uh, yeah, I I have a personal experience of exactly what you're saying as well. So uh, I think that. Uh, We'll, we'll put the links to those blog posts about uh, estimating both your uh, sodium content and your set rate and, of course, the calculator in the show notes so people can go and uh, have a bit of a more of a look at that. And, of course, we'll link to your previous episode or one of those, the first one, where we really covered all yeah. of these aspects in detail. So we don't need to go into this particular topic in much more detail right now. Uh, the next thing that I wanted to discuss instead is um, a question that comes up a lot, and it's about how to combine your energy, your electrolytes, and your fluid. And we've talked about this before, but if you can give your your take on this again and uh, perhaps even play devil's advocate for the other approaches that are that you see uh, you see recommended as well, because it's not necessarily a black and white answer. Yeah, for sure. I think predominantly, and if we we have to be clear about who we're talking about here, but my my primary interest in all of this, you know, fueling and and hydrating for endurance performance is, I think, skewed towards experiences for long and hot events. So when I say long and hot events, I'm talking about, you know, half in triathlon, half Ironman or above normally, and normally in anything above kind of 20 degrees Celsius. So that, and that, that is the area in which I'm relatively, relatively convinced that for the majority of people using a strategy which involves separating as much of your fueling from your hydration requirements is is the smart way to go and that's because there's a lot of evidence both anecdotal and scientific to promote the fact that you know lighter hypotonic as opposed to isotonic or hypertonic so hypotonic um, drinks with lots of electrolytes in and a little bit of carbohydrate or no carbohydrate are absorbed and can rehydrate you much much quicker than thicker more carbohydrate based drinks which may deliver energy as well but slow gastric emptying and slow absorption of, of, of fluids and there are always exceptions to that rule when i hear about people who do entire half ironmans and ironmans on liquid calories but in the heat there's so many things which challenge your hydration, you know, apart from the fact that you're on the obvious ones, like your sweat rates go up and so you lose more. So you just need to hydrate more anyway. You also decrease blood flow to the gut. And it's just, it's just been proven time and time again, that you absorb fluids less well in those extreme heat conditions when you're working hard. So doing everything you can to decouple fluid consumption and electrolyte consumption from energy intake is smart because you know you're going to want to drink a lot more than you would on say a cold day but your calorie requirements going to be similar so if you can get your calories from more solid sources bars gels blocks whatever your preferred methodology is and then top up with water and electrolyte tablets or electrolyte capsules or, or hypertonic electrolyte drinks then i think you put yourself in the best position to be able to absorb the maximum amount of both that's possible without gastric upset which is ultimately the aim of the game and and how does uh, this uh, this fact about the heat the heat in the environment uh, uh, affecting the absorption rate of the fluid how does that uh, come into play on the on the fluid or sorry on the energy side of things with the more solid foods like is that impacted at all is it uh, more difficult to 
absorb the energy from something like a gel or a bar when when it's hot compared to when it's cold definitely it's more it's basically more challenging to absorb anything fluids calories you know the lot when when it's very hot and i think that's principally because the blood flow gets diverted you know away from the gut and it gets it gets pushed towards the the skin to cool you down and you you also end up contracting your blood volume a lot more quickly because you dehydrate more quickly so the whole thing is sort of more challenging for the body and therefore absorption rates are slowed down. The reason I, I think that it's better to separate those calories from those fluids and salts is because if you eat solids and they sit in the stomach, then they can be dripped, the, the energy from them. The body's quite clever and you know, you can, it can pass the energy through at a rate that's compatible with its, its, its current situation rather than just putting a liquid in, which kind of in a large volume, an isotonic liquid like a traditional kind of sugary sports drink just just cascade through the stomach into the gut and can overwhelm the gut and absorption can get very messed up and you get that horrible sort of bloated gassy sicky feeling that that most athletes have experienced if they've done a long race in the heat and drunk too much you know too much of a a traditional type sports drink and uh in terms of the uh, new things that we see on the market like uh, things like uh, the the martin and uh, science sport beta fuel are becoming quite popular that are very concentrated uh, energy drinks uh, what, uh, what what's your opinion on the on them and how do they fit into the picture i think the latest the latest evidence on those is that they they obviously claim to be able to de- deliver a higher amount a higher amount of carbohydrate in a smaller amount of liquid than was possible using um a traditional sort of sports drink composition so they use like a they call it a hydrogel or something like that where where the acids in the stomach react with the contents of the drink and and sort of turn it into a gel like state so that it can it can move through the digestive system more easily or sort of almost like disguised from the from the gut as it were and i know that there was a study done i think it was um it was either i think it was it was published in 2019 it was probably undertaken before then and um they found basically that there was maybe some improvement in gastric emptying and um uh, of of these um carbohydrate drinks as compared with a normal uh, a carbohydrate drink matched uh, without the hydrogel but whether that it, it was unclear as to whether that actually resulted in faster uptake in the gut and any performance difference so the jury i think is still out as to whether it's it's an actual meaningful performance benefit even if it if it does achieve the first step of that process which is you know slightly faster transit through the first part of the digestive system Okay, yeah. And uh, then another product that I wanted to ask about, uh, we don't have it on the list of questions, actually, but I just recently had a conversation with with this company. It's uh, can Superstarch. So they have this yeah. uh, slower uh, slower absorbing a drink that they their idea is to give more of a stable, um, stable energy response or glucose response in the blood and a stable energy release. Do, do you know anything about that and how that might work? Yeah, I believe that the the theory behind that is exactly almost as you've described it, that the the carbohydrates broken down more slowly and released more slowly and so gives a more um gives a slow release of energy over a period of time rather than a, a spike. Um I've got no personal experience of using it, but I know of athletes who who are very you know, who are very keen and committed to that idea. I actually think that 
these things are a lot of these different methodologies for delivering carbohydrate or or whatever we're talking about are they get blown a little bit out of proportion in terms of the the basics you always got to fall back on are that while you're exercising you need if you're exercising for long duration especially in the heat you need to deliver water salt and calories of some sort to sustain the body and largely as long as you're sensible about how you the, the rate at which they go in it, it's so it's compatible with absorption and uptake as well as being um, compatible with the rate of energy use or sweating or whatever else or proportional to those at least then your body's pretty clever at sorting itself out and tends to tends to move whatever it needs to move this through the system and as long as you get the proportion of those three things about right you'll feel pretty good and you'll and you'll continue to exercise well the biggest mistake a lot of athletes make is not getting the proportion of those things right it's not so much what particular brand of xyz they use it's just getting the fundamentals right that's the problem so how how do they skew it incorrectly what what are the typical mistakes that occur there specifically a massive one is like drinking a isotonic sports drink because they're often available on course and without singling them out in a bad way you know Gatorade is is available at most of the North American Ironman events and Gatorade Endurance or normal Gatorade it's a very very carbohydrate rich drink six seven percent carbohydrate if if athletes are relying on that predominantly for hydration and then also topping up with gels and energy bars what they're what they're doing there is massively overdosing with carbohydrate and underdoing electrolytes and and fluids And that that is a sure recipe for gastric upset. And that happens, especially with more novice athletes, that happens time and time again because our perception in our head is that a drink bottle is a drink. It's it's you know liquid, but at the end of the day, that's almost more fuel than it is drink. And then you add more fuel on top of that, and what you end up with is a horrible sticky mess in your in your stomach that just just doesn't go anywhere and makes you feel quite obnoxious. And I would say that's probably one of the biggest mistakes another another huge mistake and i found this working with even a few elite age group athletes um in the last 12 months is that not having an appreciation of what the kinds of approximate amounts of fluids salts and calories or carbohydrates you might need per hour are and it's very much having a a kind of hit and hope approach and a non-methodical approach to iterating the way forward so i've been working with a an athlete who's doing phenomenally well in um, age group triathlon, you know, winning age group, winning and setting course records at at North American events in 70.3. But, but the first few races was probably literally scraping by and taking 30 or 40% of the, the calories and, and fluids that, that we would that that common sense or common scientific rationale would say that he needed during those events and he was you know he was very tough and very fit and just hanging in there on the run but when we adjusted that into a ballpark that was much more plausible it was it was dramatic the 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 effect that that had on the last third of his race and so i think just the level of ignorance of you know not really understanding you know what's a large amount of carbs or a reasonable amount of carbs to take per hour What's a large amount of fluid or a reasonable amount of fluid to take per hour and so on. Just having those numbers in your in your head is is a hugely important step. What do you typically recommend? Is it the typical sixty to ninety grams, or do you say one gram per kilogram body weight, or um, how how do you work with that number? 
I usually start around the sort of yeah sixty. If it's and it depends a bit on the athlete's size, so we scale it a bit by size. But a lot of it's a lot of it is more of a, a feel factor than the grams per kilo because we'll tend to base it off of the the sixty to ninety grams per hour is a good window from for a lot of faster moving athletes. But we'll also pitch it towards what they're currently doing because most athletes are doing something even if they don't know what it is. We can we can reverse engineer what they're. T- they're they're taken in by getting them to record it and and just looking at it and for instance with this athlete i was talking about he he was probably only consuming 25 to 30 grams of carbs per hour Hmm. so we didn't suddenly triple that we doubled it to start with to pull it up to the lower end whereas if he'd have already been taking 40 or 50 i might have been more aggressive and wound it up a bit further so i would always sort of move the needle in the in the direction of that you know for carbohydrate 60 to 90 grams but at the same time trying to take into account okay what's this person doing at the moment because we don't we want to make the smallest possible change that might positively influence performance rather than you know going completely the other way yeah yeah because if and if you go too far then perhaps that uh that kind of scares the athlete off of um doing a change that is needed so yeah it's better to take small steps the 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 analogy would be you know this you've got someone who comes to if you're a bike fitter you've got someone who comes in who's been riding with their bike saddle way way too low but they've obviously adapted to it to an extent and aren't performing horrendously rather than you know move it up to the point the highest possible point you think they they might want the satellite you're probably just going to go halfway you know and get them to adapt to that and then maybe you might go another another bit again but you need to do that incrementally and again i think that's a big i think that's a big um, failing of a lot of athletes is that they have these big pendulum swings in what they if, if a nutritional or hydration approach is deemed to have not worked at a particular race there's there's a big tendency to wholesale change it for the next one rather than just make small intelligent tweaks that might push it in one direction or another ultimately you know you can have success if you radically change your approach but it's very hard to pin down exactly what made the difference there if a difference occurs whereas if you incrementally move things you get a bit more sensitivity about what's actually having an, an effect and i think ultimately you become a better athlete as a result of, the, of going through that process so talking of radical changes i think that it's also kind of a a small little trend that we're seeing that some athletes are really experimenting with and uh, somewhat successfully successfully in many cases i would say using very high amounts of carbohydrates we're talking 100 220 grams per hour and which is above what is typically cited as the the research backed amount of carbohydrate that can be absorbed i've also heard i haven't read this so this is uh, this is just something that i heard from somewhere and i'm i haven't looked it up but i've heard that there is a little bit of new evidence about perhaps fructose can be absorbed in larger quantities than we previously believed which might explain why you could go up higher than 90 grams uh, per hour uh, do you know anything about this and or if not, just in general, what are your thoughts on on those high amounts of carbohydrate intake? I think I don't. I haven't read read anything rec- very recently about you know this sort of uh, carbohydrate intake with fructose specifically. But I know obviously all of the research that's been done around the um, the the different the different carbohydrate types and blends that work in 
in in unison to um, you know the classic one being the glucose fructose ratio, which allows for a higher absorption than one or um, one or the other at a time. So so it's it's well established that you know getting the blend of carbohydrates right can can influence absorption in the right direction. I think though, honestly, with the the, the high end figures like you're quoting, like over 100 grams per hour, I've definitely talked to a lot of. We we do a fair amount of work now with um, professional cyclists in the peloton, and some of those guys can eat if if what they're telling me is true. I've not seen it with my own eyes, but these guys are intelligent and they they seem they know what they do, so I'm inclined to believe them. There are definitely people there who are telling me that they will for for very intense periods during long hard events will eat more than 100 grams of carbohydrate per hour. And potentially I think like any other physiological factor if there's if the if the sweet spot window for a lot of people is 60 to 90 it's almost certain that there'll be outliers either side and so something north of 100 grams per hour is is not outlandish for maybe you know people who are either adapted or just genetically predisposed to to being able to uptake a little bit more energy and maybe it's something that you can train you know, to an extent, if you're, if you're doing it on a regular basis. And I think pro cycling is a really interesting place to go looking for, for trends like that, because unlike professional triathletes and things who rate, who can race relatively frequently, pro cyclists race so much, you know, they do so many back to back days of racing and, and different days of racing within a year that their, their bodies become exquisitely attuned to eating and absorbing calories on the bike that you know and they work at a very high intensity a lot of the time that that they're a good place to go looking for for evidence around that so it's certainly something which i'm keeping an eye out for as i'm I'm working with these people yeah and and for in training even like a six hour ride is something that is a completely normal monday kind of ride for them so uh, if you yeah. just leave it up to the the time period between your ride and sleeping eight hours per night, then you have uh, only so much time that you can uh, that you can replenish your energy source. Even if you would go by the traditional sixty to ninety grams, so I think it makes total sense that when you're training that much, uh, that uh, you try to go harder because you just need to survive the training essentially. Exactly, yeah, and I think the da- the danger with that sort of stuff as well is when we start to hear about oh, so and so is taking 120 grams of carbon now, and that's the classic thing is then you just get people copying it, and and that can be detrimental because obviously if you can't tolerate that, that's twice as much as a lot of people can tolerate, and clearly that you know when you start taking twice as much as some people can tolerate, that's gonna that's that's gonna have detrimental effects. Um, so it's important just to always you know have people love to copy what what um high performing or pro athletes do and in some ways it's it's good there are some great things to learn from them some good aspirations to look to but on the flip side it's it can be more productive sometimes to actually be realistic about your own situation and abilities and 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 you know focus on yourself as an individual Definitely, and and if you're if we're taking an Ironman as an example, there's a massive difference in a difference in energy uh, consumption energy yes. needs if you're riding at 250 watts versus 150 watts, which could be the case even for two males of the same same size, just depending on the fitness yeah. abilities of of the two athletes. So uh, so then obviously the the energy needs are going to be uh, to be very different. 
plus definitely you mean plus the yeah, relative, when you relative intensity of of exercise as well will influence how much carbs you're using somebody who's more well trained can go at a higher relative intensity but then uh, they might be using more carbs than somebody who is uh, going at a just basically your uh, all day long kind of pace because that's the safe way for them to get through their ironman if they're just doing it to complete the event I was going to say exactly the same thing. The guys, the guys and girls that are at the front who are really redlining are treading a tightrope. They're going, they're going really, really hard and burning up to the sort of maximum energy, the rate of energy burn or the, the output that they can sustain for that period. So they are treading a, a really fine line and obviously having to really maximize that calorie absorption to, to keep them on that red line. But if you are, you know, even a few percentage points below that and I haven't got the fitness to carry that kind of intensity throughout the whole duration, then you might find that proportionally your energy needs are significantly lower as well because, as, as you were saying, you know, you may be able to rely a bit more on fat adaptation and, and fat burning, in which case, you know, your, your level of consumption will be significantly lower. Yeah. So, it is it is it is complicated and, and sometimes you know the, the, the downside of having these kind of expansive conversations about it is it can lead to a bit of confusion for people because people often want to know you know what do i need to do and i think the temptation is therefore you know to offer out generic guidelines but the reality still is that, that there's that level of individual experimentation and i think it's about people becoming very good estimators for what they might need in their situation and then having the confidence to play around in that zone that, that you know, within those guardrails that actually makes for a good outcome. And that, that's where I think that's where a lot of our education efforts around what people should be doing for hydration stuff are starting to go. It's about getting people in the right zone and then letting them figure out the fine, fine details because there's nobody, nobody better placed than to do that than they are yeah so so very practically you don't want anybody to uh, just go and look up the the guidelines and then the race day is the first time that they they do it they no. they should go out and, and simulate simulate race day in some way not obviously doing a full ironman in training but uh, but doing longer uh, longer training days uh, perhaps running off a long bike ride as well and uh, and seeing how the the starting point that they they might find works for them and then adjust based on that and train it again and making sure that uh, they have the energy but also they're not causing gi distress or anything like that definitely it's all about yeah do those things do those experiments record what you did record the results and then and then you know based on the outcome of that use use intelligence or use other people as resources that's what we love to hear from athletes who've done a bit of that trial and error they can email us at hello at precisionhydration.com and we've you know we're answering those emails all the time well i've tried this in training and this was the outcome and then what do you suggest and when we're working with someone like that it's really gratifying to be able to help them push the things in the right direction but the, the way it works best is if they've got a good and accurate record of what they've been doing and what the outcomes are and then then you can sort of strongly advise on what the a sensible iterative next step is from there. Yeah. What's your opinion on doing metabolic testing to get uh, a more accurate picture of your uh, carbohydrate and fat oxidation rates and uh, then using that information for planning your race hydration and nutrition strategy? I think that it's, it's like any other, any other tool that if it's used excessively rigidly it it can be counterproductive because you'll get figures on you know your 
um, you know, your, your best fat burning zones and what kind of intensity of exercise tips you into burning, you know, too much carbohydrate or whatever. And I've seen athletes that are, that are kind of blinded by those numbers and it, and it puts artificial limiters in their head. If it's, if it's heart rate figures or power figures or speed figures that are set and they kind of get too much belief in the, in the solidity of those zones. I think on the other side though, if it's used intelligently to help inform, you know, and, and that's the kind of testing where if you can do it regularly and repeatedly, you can see changes in your metabolism and changes in your, in your effectively your fitness and efficiency level, then it can be very useful in, in guiding what you do, but it shouldn't dictate what you do. Yeah, definitely. I, I think there is, um, there's something that, uh, my coach david tilbury davis pointed out to me that in terms of like repeated uh day consecutive day vo2 max testing there can be as uh at, or a normal day-to-day variation is five percent in the measured vo2 max and that obviously carries over to all sub-maximal intensities as well and uh, mm. you might so you sh- yeah r- rigidly being rigidly attached to any number is never a good idea but uh but yeah it can give a a good uh, good starting point and some guidelines to then to then work from yeah for sure and uh, you mentioned already training the gut uh, did, have you read uh, the research and uh, or just from talking to athletes and helping athletes with hydration and nutrition uh, what's your opinion on how trainable it is to be able to uh, to take on more fluid and more carbohydrate and uh, because that's something that especially for the athletes that are going for the longer distance races could be critical if you're somebody who really isn't tolerating these things very well as it is. Yeah, I think the, I think that the, the element of the gut being trainable, especially as you transition from relatively novice athlete to becoming more experienced and moving up into longer distances, is is extremely trainable. You see some big differences. Uh, I think as you get closer, like with most physiological premises, the closer you get to being you know experienced and elite the the less the less influence that training can have because you've you've already in your as you've built up to achieving that level you've gone through a lot of those adaptations and changes so i think it's important for for athletes who are especially you know the classic one in triathlon is the transition from say olympic and half ironman racing up to full ironman racing i think that that the really reinforcing a sensible hydration nutrition strategy in your longer training sessions and races that build you up towards an Ironman should be a priority. And an example of that would be we definitely encourage some athletes who are moving from half Ironman to full Ironman to adopt a slightly more aggressive fueling and hydration plan on the bike in a half Ironman to start to prepare them for the levels that they might need to consume in an Ironman. Um, so I think that, you know, it's, it should, in answer to your question, it's, it is trainable and it should definitely be factored in as a, a, you know, a fourth or fifth discipline, if you like, when you're moving up into longer distances, because at, at Olympic distance, it's re- as long as you're hydrated and fueled when you start and listen to your body, you, you're going to do fine. If you, uh, at half Ironman, you can implode a little bit with you know poor nutrition and hydration but in Ironman it is as critical as the nutritional component is as critical as the swim the bike or the run on its own and so you've got to treat it as such and sort of focus on 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 practicing it developing it and getting it right 
how long might it take to to develop that and uh, how often should you do it in training let's say you're a typical athlete that uh, that are transitioning from half distance to full distance you might be training let's say in the region of 12 to 16 hours per week and uh, probably do a a longer bike ride on the weekend and uh, and a longer run and and then you have some uh, bike rides in the an hour and a half sort of time range during, on weekdays and uh, one hour runs what would your advice be for how often uh, to to practice taking on uh, your sort of fueling and 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 hydration and uh, yeah can you elaborate on that because i i assume that it's not going to be enough to just do a couple of half distance tune-up races and just go aggressive in those and then that's going to uh, to help you do the same thing in the in the full iron and you're going to have to do it in training quite a bit as well absolutely i think the the key ones would obviously be any long brick sessions that you do especially those which are having large elements of simulated race intensity or getting close to race intensity because that's the best case scenario for for, for training um for practicing those elements um if you're someone who's going to race very I, I my big preference on testing these things out is it is under the under this heat and pressure of competition so factoring races in if you can that that allow you the opportunity to do it as, as much as possible is really really important um but if if the situation dictates that that might only be one or two occasions then i would definitely look at organizing some some slightly more maybe maybe some slightly longer and harder training sessions than would otherwise be warranted specifically to shake that aspect of your performance down because because if you go into race day with that nutrition and hydration plan a little bit untested you are leaving a pretty significant factor to chance but you don't think that you necessarily need to to practice that same sort of uh, uh, hydration and nutrition uh, uptake rate in your weekday training sessions for example those one to one and a half hour sessions because i think that that's something that uh, i remember jesse kropolnicki uh, uses as a strategy with his athlete they actually even for very short 30 to 45 minute sessions so definitely going on the extreme end of things there but they all the time if they're working towards a long distance they they are uh, practicing taking on hydration and nutrition what's your thought on, on that that strategy i think that that's uh well how do i feel about that i think it's probably it probably isn't going to do any harm whether it's going to whether it's going to be substantially effective in what it's going to add i honestly don't know i think one advantage to to paying a lot of attention to your fueling and hydration in quite an aggressive way during your say well, let's call them your midweek training sessions or whatever these these 90 minute you know hour 90 minute sessions is that theoretically that should help you with recovery from those sessions because big part of the recovery from from midweek training especially if you are an age group or leading a busy life and all that, is making sure you're adequately fueled and hydrated so if you make that a priority i don't see a particular downside to it but i would say i would still stand by the fact that you get the, you're going to get the majority of the benefits I, I would imagine by doing this in those kind of longer harder sessions which are more simulated certainly that's where you're going to take the most learnings from them um adaptively he, he could well be onto a point there but but for me the priority would be still around you know making sure that you're doing them right in those those long sessions and i say that because i see so many athletes who for instance aren't prepared to really go to the nth degree of, of really trialing their race nutrition plan in 
in those key sessions. They'll plan those key sessions, but then they'll use whatever energy bars, drinks, tablets, whatever it is they've got in their cupboard at the time, rather than actually trying to simulate what they're going to do in the race. And I think that level of detail, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't sort of put, put an old, a different bike saddle on your bike when you go out and do these rides. So why you wouldn't eat the same type of gels, drink the same type of drinks or whatever, to me is is madness. But I see that quite frequently. Yeah, it's uh, you only have uh, so many opportunities to to train that if yeah. that's that's not something that you're going to do much more than like once per week would even be high because you lose quite a few weeks to like off season and uh, maybe some recovery weeks and things like that. So yeah, it makes sense. What yeah, you're I mean to g- to give you an example of that, J- James and I from from PH we did the Otolo Swim Run Worlds last year, and that was a that's an eight hour race or nine hour race for us, and we we went to a pretty significant extent on some of our longer training sessions actually going through the different types of gels that we could carry and even trying the individual flavors and stuff to make sure that we were totally happy with using them on the move how easy the packets opened what the flavor was like how they made our stomachs feel because we knew that getting that part of that race right was critical so when we carried the stuff with us on the day we were confident that we tried and tested all of the different components of it and and be that a marginal gain if you want to call it that i think it was a significant one in my head at least going into the race going i know that i've at least i've got this nutrition hydration plan nailed which was important because for that race i was going into it you know in aerobic and and muscle endurance terms relatively under trained you know off, off the training volume so that was an area where i felt you know we could we could focus on on getting it right and if i look back and a lot of these things that i'm saying as well i look back and these are these are learnings from earlier in my career when i was racing ironman and i wasn't as attentive to those details and i do believe that 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 meant that i came unstuck because i was a lot fitter than i am now but i definitely maybe abuse that fitness by or use that fitness to mask some lack of detailed preparation in some of these other areas yeah that that's a great example and uh makes a lot of sense uh you're mentioning the gels and the different tastes that uh, uh brought up something to my mind that uh that i wanted to ask and that's uh th- there are some gels that are isotonic whereas most would be hypertonic uh, do you yeah. think that that is an advantage in terms of absorption of the energy in those gels or yeah what do you think, think about that i think it definitely is if fluid availability is limited so we used a lot of those in the otolo racing where you can't get regular access to drinks i think if you're going to have them in a triathlon where you've got regular access to bottles of water on the bike and stuff then it's less of an issue because you just take an extra half a mouthful mouthful of water and you've you effectively got the same kind of mixture then but but if yeah, if you're in a situation where fluids are limited, I think those lighter, thinner gels are fantastic, and I, I really like them. They they tend to go down a lot easier, especially in the heat. So here's a follow up on that then, because if uh, hypertonic and even uh, isotonic uh, fluids absorb less well than than hypotonic fluids, if you have a gel, let's say a hypertonic gel, and then you have some water with it. Uh, wouldn't those added together be kind of like a, a hypertonic drink and but are they sort of seen differently by the body or what what do you think about that it's a good question and i think you know w- ultimately whatever goes down down your ha- down the hatch ends up in your stomach and ends up being mixed up now 
in my experience, you know, solid foods, obviously, when you eat a solid food, it forms a, a bolus in the stomach and is then it kind of the stomach works it all together and then it is it's digested and slowly at a rate that the stomach or that the, the stomach wants to push it through into the gut. With a, with a semi-solid like a gel, in my experience, you know, from a from an athlete perspective, not from the not from doing anything in the lab, you know, they seem to behave more closely to the to the feel that you get when you eat a solid food rather than rather than a, a straight up liquid, you know, rather than just drinking a, a, a very very light mixture of, of carbohydrate and, and fluid. Honestly, I don't I don't know from a a physiology perspective and a scientific perspective what is happening in the stomach precisely when you add those two things together but in my experience it seems it seems to be processed a little bit better a little bit differently if you have gels and a hypotonic drink as opposed to a, an isotonic drink per se and i think possibly what's going on there is nothing so much on the physical level as as the fact that if you're listening to your body and you're taking energy when you need energy and fluids when you need fluids you're you're listening to your body's needs and you're you're topping that system up and giving it what it needs at the time that it needs it rather than just every every time you open your mouth it's heavy dose of carbohydrate and a dose of fluid if that makes sense yeah so that, that that's that's where on a hot day you know, you might find that you're reaching for the drink bottle three times more often than you are reaching for a gel. On a cold day, the ratio might be reversed. Yeah. And I think it's allowing you to have that flexibility of fine-tuning the mixture that makes the difference rather than what the physical mixture is when it ends up in your stomach. So I think we should uh, just clarify here that uh, when we talked about hydration and electrolytes and uh, and energy, and you mentioned that your preference is that energy should be solid foods, gels would be in this context classified classified as solid foods, correct? Yes, yeah, I, I put them in that sort of in that category, yeah. and I know that it's not that's not necessarily everyone's view, but for this for the purposes of this, then. Yeah, that's how they seem to get treated, especially because if you took them in isolation, they are very, very hypertonic. And apart from the the, the more isotonic ones, and and therefore, I think the body treats them as a digestible food. Mm. So another topic that we have on our list here is uh, wearables and the monitoring of hydration status. And this is something that I know absolutely nothing about. But you said that there are some developments in this area. So can you elaborate on that? Very much so. There are there, there's a number of companies, and we've been in dialogue with with several of them. And I think it's not going to be too long. And probably this year, next year, you're going to start to see prototypes and maybe even some commercially available products that are going to be able to look at sweat rate and sweat sodium loss and maybe even other parameters in sweat in real time. And I think, notwithstanding whether the accuracy of these things can be really firmly validated if it if it can be you know there's a this huge potential to start for everyone to start to learn a lot more about what what changes in sweat loss sweat sodium composition all these kind of things happen over the over extended periods of time and then what effect that has on performance and and what influence that might have on intake so i think when basically what's going to happen is once those wearables start to 
be used by a lot of people, we're going to have a sudden influx of lots and lots of interesting data, which we can then correlate against different hydration nutrition plans and performance outcomes and accelerate the learning in that space massively. Because if you think about what happens at the moment is we can estimate sweat rates, we can estimate sodium loss and all these other things during exercise, but they're based on snapshot readings taken at different times if we can actually monitor what's going on in real time we can and we can really map that against what happens in the body as performance is either maintained or improves or deteriorates i think that we can you could really start to see what effect changing hydration and nutrition plans could have on the fly and that'd be really really interesting so are there some companies already out there that are public about that they're trying to develop these kinds of products that you could name or is it Yeah, I've seen I've seen I've seen the you know I've seen Gatorade testing their patch in different places so they've got a sweat a sweat monitoring patch I believe that is uh, that is not they, they claim is not far away although it's been not far away from going to market for quite a while now that that appears to be there and then a handful of others are more from academic institutions and research institutions that seem to be targeting sport alongside um let's say military and other and clinical and occupational applications as well by monitoring lots and lots of parameters in sweat so there's a yeah there's a there's, there's a, a number of them but um i think most of them appear to be in a, a kind of working prototype stage as opposed to being close to a, a finished commercial product yet with a name mm, yeah well we'll just need to to watch this space then and definitely yeah are, are there any other updates that uh, you want to mention in the realm of hydration or any new research or things that uh, that you've uh, found interesting or maybe written about uh, recently or just that our listeners would find uh, valuable and interesting i think we covered one of them which was that research on the you know the sort of hydrogel stuff which is is very much so called into question whether it's as as big a game changer as as has made been made out and what i'll do is i'll dig out the research paper for you that came out last year or link to it if i can to, to put in the notes because i think for a lot of people it'd be it'd be worth reading that because whilst i'm i'm definitely i'm definitely a big advocate for kind of innovative technology in in that area and i think that is a really it, it's still it's still you know the jury is still out as to how effective it is i think one of the potential issues with that kind of thing is so much hype gets created around the difference between say you know this hydrogel versus just a dense carbohydrate drink or, or a, car, a normal carbohydrate gel that it really it, it gets blown out of proportion in people's minds how much difference it makes so for us we've decided that you know going forward the moment focus on the education basics around hydration nutrition is actually probably far more important for the average person be it a little bit less sexy and a little bit less um you know marketable it it is ultimately probably where most people can find the biggest performance gains so one of the things that we've done i know we've sent um an invite to to you to have a look at it in the past is we've put a um uh, an endurance hydration um, training course or, or um you know, it's called the science of endurance hydration it's a course a video course that you can do on the training peaks thinkific plaf- platform and um, that would be something which i'd encourage you know, some of your listeners to have a look at they can access it via our website or directly via the training peaks platform we can probably put a link in for you to find it but that's a course they can sign up to do of you know eight or nine 
lectures and some workshops and things that really take you through what I would say are a lot of the fundamentals around hydration for endurance exercise. And so for us, it's that it's that we're trying to look the other way to where a lot of the the rest of the industry is going, which is you know whiz bang sort of marketable but but potentially hype fueled new ideas to actually saying education around the basics is probably going to help more athletes in the long run yeah definitely um i recently did a Q&A episode where i covered uh, two devices uh, it was the um, halo neuroscience brain stimulator and uh, the other one was uh, uh, what's it called again Oh, the sleep tracker that I'm totally blanking on right now. Sleep and HR, continuous HRV monitoring. Um, whoop. Yeah, I the think whoops. I know which one. Yeah, whoop. Yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, the, like around those, especially the whoop, I think there's been a lot of hype built up. And it's the same with not like necessarily wanting to bash those two companies. Uh, but uh, but just in general, like when, when something new comes up, there there's typically this hype curve where... Uh, at first, it's built up to be way more important than it actually is. And then it goes through this trough of uh, disillusionment that I think people call it in this hype curve model. And yes, then, I've heard. Yeah. And, and then eventually it settles at, at its rightful place in where, where it should be in terms of the importance. But yeah, I think you're absolutely spot on there that uh, that it's very unlikely that something new is going to come up that uh, is a game changer that revolutionizes anything. It's more incremental steps that we're we're seeing and incremental improvements in our knowledge about how things are changing. And and that's uh, and certainly I think that different formulations can be a part of that incremental change, but it's not going to be uh, a game changer or uh, like any because it's so unlikely that anything is going to be that because it it just doesn't really happen like that. It doesn't work like that. No, it's it's funny. I think the athletes often expect or hope for because we all we all want to improve and we all want to be you know better than we are or better than we were and are prepared to put quite a lot of effort into that, especially with training and planning and all the rest of it. But there's that sort of enduring, there's that enduring hope that there will be that that thing out there that that takes us to that to, to really leapfrogs us to the next level and actually there's been something like that hasn't there in the last sort of last couple of years which has been the nike vaporfly shoes and the four percent shoes and whatever which do appear to really elevate a lot of people's performance by a considerable amount mm. and it seems that basically all you have to do is you know be prepared to pay 250 dollars for the shoes and then you've got that performance jump but that's really rare isn't it that's Almost, I almost can't think of anything else in recent memory that's made a as big a difference as that, you know. So, uh, yeah, focusing, like I said, focusing on those on those those simple things, whilst it's not it's not sexy and it requires a little bit of grind and a little bit of boring, you know, back and forth iteration. If people are serious about improving, then I think that's a good place to go looking. Yeah. All right. We'll have lots of links in the show notes uh, that we'll put together after this episode. So they will all be available for, for the listeners to go and have a look at. And um, I'm interested in reading the the, the paper on the, the hydrogels as well. So I might do a, a Q&A or something about that in the not too distant uh, future and see the specifics of what that paper mentioned. But um, uh, Andy, it's been great uh, talking to you. Uh, any final words for the listeners? 
Oh no, this, I'm just really pleased to be still back on, and I'm, it's fantastic um, for the whole the whole of the triathlon community that your um, your podcast is just keep, keeping growing from strength to strength. So we're you know precision hydration. I think we've been involved from 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 quite early on in that journey, but it's been fantastic to be part of that, and we, we genuinely wish you continued success with it because we we think you provide a, an excellent you know uh, an excellent service to the community. Same to you, absolutely. Same to you. Thank you, and I'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Michael. See you soon. I hope that you enjoyed that interview. I always really, really enjoy talking to Andy and hearing what he has to say. He is uh, very knowledgeable, as uh, I'm sure you uh, gathered from that interview and from the previous appearances he's made on the podcast. We mentioned quite a lot of resources, a few blog posts, a few research papers, and everything is linked to in the show notes and the episode description. In the next episode, or next Monday, I should say, on Thursday we have a Q&A as usual, and, uh, but on Monday I will interview a world-class triathlon coach that I'm sure most of you have heard about. Uh, the, the one thing is that I haven't quite decided who it will be because I have multiple of these world-class coaches lined up. So it could be, uh, for example, a US Olympian and now elite coach Ryan Bolton, or it could be Philip Seip, who is uh, coaching Sebastian Keenley and Laura Philip, among others. Or maybe Faris Al-Sultan, who is, uh, of course, a former Ironman world champion and uh, an Ironman world champion coach now as well on uh, two occasions with Patrick Lange. So stay subscribed. The show must go on and uh, there's plenty of great episode coming your way. If you want to check out any of the training plans, coaching or other services that we offer, go and check out scientifictriathlon.com and you can read more about those products and services there. And uh, finally, thank you to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. And you can get 15% off your order with the promo code thattriathlonshow15. And uh, actually, one thing that uh, I forgot to mention is that uh, we also have a discount code, a 50% discount code for the Training Peaks University course that uh, Andy mentioned. And it is available in the episode description and in the show notes of this episode. It's um, a bit complicated, so I won't read it out here. But you can find it in your podcast player or on the website uh, in the links and resources section. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, and high-performance eyewear. And get 20% off your order with the promo code TTS20. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.